This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Well, it doesn't take a lot today to see that Americans are mad. In the last few years, we've been able to see it on both sides of the political aisle. We've seen it on the left as its adherents have looted and rioted in our cities. Canceled conservatives rejoice that the FBI has parents in its sights for trying to fight back against critical race theory in public schools. They've cheered that people are losing their jobs over vaccine mandates. And of course, they beat the drum on the fake insurrection narrative of January 6th. And then we also see anger on the Right, as conservatives show their frustration with the left's tactics and also an increasingly corrupt government, big tech censors, and a GOP establishment that never seems to follow through on its promises. Even more, there is still fury on the right over the questionable results of the 2020 presidential election and a host of other issues, rightly so. And of course, we know anger is sometimes warranted, but when and why did our country become full out furious? And how is that affecting our republic? And even more so, how might it unravel our republic later on if it is not checked. We're going to talk about all this today with Dr. Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. He is also a former professor of anthropology and a college provost and the author of several great books, including 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. His latest is called Wrath, America Enraged. And Dr. Wood, it is great to have you back on the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, very good. Thank you for being here. You have written before, I know, on this phrase, new anger, which is kind of an interesting term. What exactly is new anger, and how does it describe where we are right now? Well, the shortest definition is that it's show-off anger. And uh, as you mentioned, I wrote about it before, about 15 years ago, in a book titled A Bee in the Mouth, Anger in America Now. The purpose of that book was to trace the origin of this uh, Uh, welcoming of anger into our lives. It wasn't always so. America, for several centuries, had a pretty strong prohibition on just getting angry all the time. Um, People were taught from childhood on to engage in some emotional control, and if you did get angry, to try to find your way out of that wilderness as quickly as you could. Um, After World War II, that began to be challenged, first by the avant-garde, the uh, wise of uh, Fordian psychotherapy was teaching people that repressing your anger would bring neurosis. Uh, There were existentialists coming in from Europe teaching us that the really authentic way to live was an angry way to live. Hmm. Resentfulness and uh, being pissed off all the time was a, a good way to be. And it took, of course, several generations for those ideas to reach out to a a kind of all-encompassing public, but it's happened, and part of that earlier book was tracing how it happened. The current book picks up where the other one left off and says that uh, basically the the warning that this is not a good way to live our lives 
uh, was unheated, not that I expected it would be heated, but uh, we've now arrived at the point where uh, the anger of the left, which is a kind of permanent lifestyle, <laughs> it's a, a kind a way of living in which being angry all the time is seen as virtuous, has uh, spilled over to the conservative side of things, where being angry is now seen as uh, the only option available when the rule of law has broken down. Um, this book picks up with the 2020 election and the January 6th riots, which taught one big lesson to many millions of Americans, which is that the police and the courts are not on your side, that the uh, expectation that injustices will be righted by the authorities can no longer be relied on. Right. And when we find ourselves in, in that situation, I think we go beyond anger to the title of the book, Wrath. Wrath mm -hmm. is that feeling of uh, absolute helplessness in seeking any kind of justice through ordinary means, and therefore people being pushed into something where they're not comfortable going, but they don't see any alternative. Right. And th that, that's where we are. Yeah, it's interesting because after President Trump was inaugurated, we saw the wrath of the left. And I remember thinking at the time that it was very disproportionate to what was going on. You just had a new president inaugurated. They were so mad that Hillary Clinton did not become president as they expected her to be. They're out there. The Women's March comes to mind. And you have videos that still circulate on the Internet of a, one particular woman wailing at the sky. There were a number of them just screaming. And I thought this is such an insane reaction to an election. What, and then they just kept it up and they ramped it up and ramped it up and ramped it up. Is this a political strategy for the people who kind of gin this up? Because you have this, you know, you have this elite uh, leftist kind of cabal on the one hand to the pundit class and the politicians and so forth. But then you have the people who are out on the streets who seem to just feed on this and move the ball down the court, as it were, in terms of taking the wrath and turning it into activism and sometimes just outright crazy behavior. How do you assess all of that? Well, I assess it close to what you're saying. I think there are two parts of it. One are those who are strategists who understand that what the people in sort of the street want is excitement and nothing is more exciting than feeling uh, licensed to go out and uh, burn buildings or uh, take pot shots at police. That kind of permission gets granted by an elite, which itself would not be there. Um, I think back to my days when I was at Boston University, and one of my fellow faculty members was a man named Howard Zinn, familiar mm. name. Oh, sure. Author of that uh, horrible textbook. Uh, Howard Zinn used to lead mobs of students that he'd worked up with his speeches to the uh, office of the president, where I was working at the time, not as the president, but I was there. And the mobs would become unruly. They begin to break into the building. The police would be called. The police would arrive pretty promptly and start arresting the people who were out of hand. But I could see Howard Zinn at the back of the crowd melting away. And he'd achieved what he wanted to do. Hmm. He'd set off a riot, but he wasn't going to be one of those arrested for sure. Right. Uh, I, I tend to think that's the model here, that uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is not going to be the one out there uh, 
setting fire to um, police stations, but she doesn't mind in the least if some of her followers are doing that. Right. Um, that's kind of excusable violence in their eyes. The, um, so what's happening with the people who actually participate in it? They, I think, are primed for this. They think that they're doing something right, um, and they think that because they've been brought up their whole lives to believe that they are fighting against injustice, and in the fight against injustice, anything is allowed, everything is permitted, as uh, Dostoevsky once put yes. Yes. That That permission is one in which uh, they view their opponents as uh, a combination of stupid and evil, and therefore, uh, whatever you can do against them is for a good cause. Well, we've seen this kind of justification for the madness of crowds, at least since the communist revolution. And there is a sort of continuity between uh, the violent Marxism of revolutions in Europe and the kind of uh, attitude that is now taking hold among a substantial number of Americans. Yes. I think that we peaceful Americans outnumber the the uh, ones who actually seek violence by many orders of magnitude. But a few people with uh, Molotov cocktails or uh, frozen water bottles or incendiary devices of other sorts can, can do an awful lot of damage, and they have. No doubt about it. And it doesn't help that we have a vice president in Kamala Harris who is helping to raise money to bail out some of those street terrorists, as as it were. It's just a, a crazy time, and it really is an important thing to dive into in a little bit more depth. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Dr. Peter Wood. His book is called Wrath, America Enraged. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. Over 169,000 babies saved and more than 51,000 commitments to Christ through the ministry of preborn as they celebrate 15 years of saving babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. This is a reflection of God's heart as the father to the fatherless to be able to look across America and see this tragedy, this Holocaust of abortion, and know that people like you 
are doing something about it. It's one thing to say that we're against abortion, but it's really another to take action. Will you join Preborn in providing hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel in action across America? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help to rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It is one thing to be angry. It is another thing to be full of wrath. That's another level of fury. We're discussing the book, Wrath, America Enraged by Dr. Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. Now, we were discussing before we went to the break, Dr. Wood, the leftist level of anger. And you'd brought up that this is, in many respects, what we've seen during the, you know, the riots and the looting in the major cities and so forth. This is indicative or at least resembles to some extent some of the revolutions in Europe. Uh, people have said of the French Revolution. They've cited the Bolshevik Revolution. How do you see the wrath of the left playing out politically? I mean, we're beginning to see how crazy it's getting, but is wrath simply a tool, a means to an end, at least for the elites? I think for the elite it is. It's a way of uh, both achieving power and extending power. That is, if you can work up enough people to create enough intimidation, you end up with a pretty good formula for suspending people's rights, becoming a nation in which, uh, under the guise of rule of law, you get a, uh, a regime that is basically totalitarian in character. I mean, there, this comes out in so many forms. We're dealing with the, uh, the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates. We're, we're dealing with uh, the unwillingness of our government to enforce borders. We're dealing with the transformation of our military into a a system that cares more about teaching people they're racist than about exercising defense of our country, and so on. That's what you get when you have the shock troops of the angry left at your back or at your back. And uh, the wrath for the conservatives is a different thing. It's where they're pushed to and reluctantly go. Um, and it has not yet taken the form of being violent. It has been essentially trapped into this uh, world of deep frustration, uh, growing resentment of the uh, loss of liberties that we're faced with but not yet finding an outlet for itself. I think yeah. it's, that itself is dangerous because you leave people with no choice. They'll eventually start to do imprudent things. And I think that is part of the left's game plan. They want to tempt people to riot so that they can use that as an excuse to take yet away more rights. Yeah. Right. Well, look at the insurrection narrative, as you've referred to it in your book. What, what's gone on uh, going back to January 6th and the Trump rally and all these people who are now being referred to by a, a large swath of pundits as political prisoners. Here they have people in jail for months at a time who aren't charged with insurrection or racketeering or any serious charges. The, the whole thing has been a ruse. And we're not seeing the footage. A lot of the footage that was taken that day, we're not seeing it. There have been stories about whether or not the FBI was in bed 
embedded in trying to actually incite people. We can't even get the full story because we don't have a media we can trust in large measure. So, of course, people are frustrated. But what is going to come down the pike because of what they've done with the insurrection narrative? Isn't that just a way for the left to do kind of a shot across the bow and warn the right? If you do even the slightest thing to try to push back against us, we're going to throw everything we have at you and just scare us. Right. Stage two of the insurrection narrative is the Merrick Garland uh, insistence that people exercising their right to speak up at school board meetings are now domestic terrorists. Right. We're seeing perfectly innocent people, law-abiding people, thrown in jail on flimsy pretexts. The due process of the law is not uh, abided. People charged with offenses like trespassing have been sitting in jail for nine months oftentimes in solitary confinement, yeah. given a, uh, a system that's that ogreish, I think a lot of people are intimidated. They may think twice before speaking up at a school board meeting, seeing what happened to the innocent protesters of the um, January 6th riot, where there were some rioters, but there were plenty of other people who didn't riot. Right. Um, the uh, What comes of this, I think... People need to take counsel with themselves as to whether it's worth the risk. I hope that so many Americans will see what they're up against, that they will begin to exercise the forms of civil disobedience. I'm heartened to see those pilots and air traffic controllers slowing down or sicking out because they don't want to follow the government mandates. We need that kind of resistance to take place across the country. That would be a constructive channel for wrath, right. not rebellion, just resistance. Right. Well, one of the things that you uh, touch on in the book, and I think this is one of the key ideas that you've laid out, is that emotions are socially patterned. How does that idea explain the wrath that we're seeing? And how does that relate to what you just said about regulating your emotions when you're angry is such an important thing for us to do at a moment like this? Well, the, the transformation into a nation in which people are proud of displaying their anger is troubling. That is, we all are going to be angry. It's just part of human nature, and some things will upset us, and one reaction to it is to get riled up. So question then becomes, what do you do with that when it happens or when you sense that it is happening? Um, We once knew in a fairly good way that uh, taking the, breaking the circuit, just taking that moment out and finding some way to calm yourself down was the right way to approach it. Uh, What we have now more often, and I don't think this is left or right, it's just what's happened, is a culture in which displaying anger, performing anger, gets applause. Um, You can think back to the days when uh, tennis players were the most polite people in the world. And then we had uh, the land of throwing rackets and cursing out the, uh, the umpires. Um, this is now standard procedure in almost all our sports. Sportsmanship has been displaced by this uh, uh, throwing public tantrums. Uh, that quality of uh, showing off your anger has become a feature of our entertainment. Hmm. Uh, it has filtered into our family life, 
uh, throwing a tantrum is now no longer um, a disgrace. It's something that's sort of been expected, doesn't get it out of your system approach. Um, and I think it entered in our, into our politics. Um, when President Trump first came on the scene as a candidate, I had a lot of hesitation about him precisely because he had made his career in television as a performer of this angry stuff. And I wondered, is that what he's going to do as president? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out he was a much more temperate person uh, in the Oval Office than our current president. Um, His use of sort of uh, angry humor, I think, um, sometimes cost him support of people he might have otherwise convinced. That's Trump. But um, what we have with Biden is somebody who uh, is much more directly vituperative. If you irritate him, he comes right back with uh, rather demeaning uh, put-downs of ordinary people. Anyway, I I see all of this as... uh, a reflection of the culture in which we now live. Changing a culture isn't something you can do by wishing it into place. It takes the form of what we teach our children generation by generation, where the permissions lie to behave this way and not that. Yes. Uh, So that's where we are. Yeah, and that's so important. So when you bring up the subject of civil disobedience and just this rock-solid refusal to cooperate with what you're calling an illegitimate government in the book, this is obviously a much better way to handle and, and channel your anger into refusing to you know submit to totalitarian behavior. Uh, but a lot of people still talk about, is there any likelihood that we're just going to have the nuclear option at some point, whether or not it's a physical civil war or a secession plan by states? Uh, people are kind of feeling that raw emotion, like, where is this headed? Nobody really knows. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think the potential is really there for some kind of civil war type thing where people just break out. I, I wouldn't have bothered writing the book. I wasn't worried that that was uh, a possibility. And I, I, I like not so many others uh, in the public conversation, think that that potential is very real and very near, and that it's important, while we still can, to pull back a little bit and ask, is that the right way to go? Uh, um, I'm I'm myself a Christian. I tend to think that uh, Christianity, though it's sort of muted in American life, still has a deep presence in our national soul, and I'm hoping that people will hearken to that sense that uh, their, their better angels want them to find a peaceful way forward. Yeah. Peaceful does not mean weak. Right. Uh, it's a strong resistance to a uh, illegitimate government is perfectly called for, but uh, resisting has to be done in a wise way, lest it come back and make the situation even worse. Yes, yes. Yeah, I agree with you completely on that. And I also really appreciate this idea that when you're kind of taking this wrath out on other people or taking it out on the population in general, 
how in the world can you self-govern if you can't control your emotions? And especially the emotion of wrath, which is so overwhelming and can do so much damage. It's definitely the case that at least for those of us who understand that we don't want to be rioting and looting out in the streets and doing the things that the leftist activists have done, that we learn to get our anger under control and do something, like you say, very constructive with it. It's a great book. It's called Wrath, America Enraged by Dr. Peter Wood. And so good to have you with us, Dr. Wood. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks again for having me. You are welcome. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. As Lebanon now faces a national crisis on almost every front, the desperate need for help and for hope in that country has never been greater. Now, we have told you before about the great work of Heart for Lebanon, which is on the ground in that country, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in such need of help and hope. And because of this ministry's work, more and more people of Muslim background are coming to know the Lord. The stories are amazing. But the number of people in need over there is huge. And a lot of these families in the refugee camps of Lebanon are on a waiting list to get help. Now, over the next few weeks, we are asking you to help us reach out with the love of Jesus to 52 families at a time when the need is so huge. Your gift of $116 will provide one child and his family with survival essentials for four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts as we know forever. You can also help out with a gift of $29 a month, but call now if you can help. The number is 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We're going to get some fresh details on the situation in Lebanon now from Heart for Lebanon COO Tom Adama. So good to have you here. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great, Janet. So good to be with you today. Well, thank you. Will you give us an update? You know, we have been privileged to work with Heart for Lebanon for the last several years, and it's just been a joy to see what the Lord is doing over there. But things are very, very bad in Lebanon at the moment. They're making headlines over a banking crisis, the economy, the spiraling currency, the food shortages. Can you give us an overall look at the situation on the ground? Yeah, you forgot to say that the power has been out for 48 hours in yes. the country and yep. by both generators. So yeah. it's making it worse by the moment that's True. going on. But it's one crisis after another. Overall, the people of Lebanon, whether they're refugees or Lebanese, have given up hope. And they're filling that gap because drug abuse is up, alcohol abuse is up, uh, just um, uh, all kinds of uh, different um, behaviors of, of negative value are skyrocketing um and all that's filling this gap of this void because people are looking for hope but we have the hope the hope is in the gospel of jesus christ and it's transforming lives 
And we have people, as you mentioned, on the waiting list, waiting to be served. And right now, like some 4,000 families we, we are serving every month. Mm. And one of those young ladies comes from a little village south of Aleppo in the country of Syria. Her name is Lufta. Lufta is a Syrian woman, as I mentioned, 35 years of age. And she has five children, mm. ages 19 to 9 years of age. They came to Lebanon. I got involved in our village that we serve in and came to one of our distributions one day and said, I'm desperate. I need food. I need help. I need somebody to come alongside of me and help me. I'm starving. My kids are starving. And I'll do anything you ask, even go to a Bible study, <laughs> if you help me with food. And we said, well, no, 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 no. We do everything unconditionally. Let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. We ended up serving her and her family, put one of her children in our educational program. Now, here's what's exciting for me, is that her youngest daughter came to faith in Christ first, was so excited about her faith, went home and shared with her mom. Mom became a believer. Now the whole family's a believer. Mm. And now they're in our missional leadership development program, studying mom is and dad, to go back to Syria to become house church planters wow. with the gospel of Jesus Christ in their home village in Syria. It's all made possible because somebody picked up the phone and gave us fuel in our tank, uh, prayers in our in our chest, so that we could be able to meet these people such as Lefta with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God. That is so encouraging. And, and that really is an important thing for people to understand in providing the help and the education, the survival essentials that we're talking about. That's kind of a door opener, isn't it? Because you have all these people from Muslim background who may never have heard the gospel before or, or have views of Christianity that aren't accurate. By having that door opened through kindness and care and compassion, there's such a huge response, Tom. It's just overwhelming what the Lord is doing there. Well, it's all about relationships. And Jesus taught us all about relationships. But when you use it in a Muslim culture in the proper way, unconditionally, Muslims are used to giving something back when you give them something. It's hmm. part of the, their backgrounds, part of their heritage, it's part of what they were, they're taught that if I give you anything of value to you, you owe me. That's why you can, sorry to say, but you can determine the election. Because I've given you so much stuff over the last year, you owe me your vote. Hmm. You owe me whatever. That's why the country of Lebanon is in such bad shape, why there's moral and ethical corruption at the highest level that started during the Civil War, and it's called sin. Right. It's corruption. Yes. Ethical and moral corruption. Yes. The way you combat that is you provide food and you build trust, not not in a not in a, a manipulative way, unconditionally. Right. We just give it to them because they need the help. Yes. But we know that there's biblical law that says they'll eventually say, "Why are you doing this? You're not asking for anything in return." Hmm. <laughs> like well, that's the normal thing, and we say, "Well, no, we don't want anything in return because Jesus gave us a free gift." Amen. Who's Jesus? And I have to remember that 97% of the Muslim people that we deal with have never heard the name Jesus. Wow. Wow. They have no clue. They don't even know, they don't know anything about him. So the first response is, who's Jesus? In fact, I had a lady tell me face to face, Tom, if there's a Jesus, can you go out and get, and get him and bring him back? And I would like to meet him. Oh. And I and I said, well, he's already here. Yeah. And I had the privilege of leading two years ago this lady to the Lord. Uh, in her tent settlement. But people are hungry for the hungry to meet Jesus and to have an answer for this gap 
of this lack of hope that's in their life. And food, hygiene items, education, survival essentials, whatever they need helps fill that need, but then builds that trust so that we can build a relationship and eventually do a Bible study where yeah. they'll find Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's so great. It's so great. Now, we are partnering with you to help 52 families. We want to get a child and his family, 52 of those families, for four months, Survival Essentials and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can also give a gift of $29 a month or a $116 one-time gift. 888-247-5499 is the number to call 888 247 What I find so fascinating, Tom, when I'm listening to this is how many families are lining up to get help from Heart for Lebanon. Can you tell us a little bit about the waiting list? Well, the waiting list is uh, actually what you're asking your audience to help us with the first 52, but yep. there's actually over 500 on the list that we keep adding to each and every day. It's, you're in a culture that doesn't know how to say no. Hmm. You're in a culture that uh, is, is a no-shame culture, so the word no doesn't exist. So when they come to our team, we, we, we have to say no in a, in a polite way. And one of the ways we can do that politely is say, we can't do it now. We have to look for the resources, but we'll put you on this list. And as soon as we get the resources, we'll be able to, to provide this this aid, whatever they're requesting to you. And we'll do it again unconditionally for as long as it takes. Now, your, your listeners might be saying, well, in a country that's falling apart, how do you get food? How do you get all these different items that you get to these people? You can do it. There is food in the country. You might not have 16 brands of bread. You might only have four, but you can get bread. Yes. And the pricing is very reasonable considered, considering the economic situation that they are in. So we can get everything that we need. It's not a problem. We just need some fuel in our tank to be able to take these people off the list, and they're really desperate. Right. And what's interesting to me is, just as a side note, is people are now coming to us and saying, I had this happen to me a month ago when I was in Lebanon. We've been on the list. We've been getting aid now for six, seven months. I met a couple that just came here. They need help more than I need it. Can you give them my my supply, and I'll figure out how to get my my supplies. Hmm. Wow. They have this heart of gratitude, of thanks, of sharing. That's and that's amazing. all we want to do is build on that. Oh, of course. Well, that is daunting. So we are trying to get 52 families off that waiting list. If you can give a gift of $116, you'll provide a child and his family with survival essentials for four months and the hope of the gospel, courtesy of Heart for Lebanon. We really appreciate your support. You can call 888-247-5499, 247 5499 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. Tom Adamo with Heart for Lebanon. God bless you, Tom. Thank you so much for the update. Thank you, Janet. Anytime. God bless you. God bless you, too. We're praying for you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. We'll be back. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. The UN has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, there are some really weird statements coming out of the White House, not the least of which came out of the mouth of the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki. This is just weird how they let things slip. You would think they would want to keep these things to themselves. But in fact, they're willing to admit things now and then. It's going back to Rahm Emanuel saying you never want to let a serious crisis go to waste because that would give you an opportunity to do things that you could not do before. And that became, you know, very, very uh, noticed by people on the other side of the political aisle as, oh, that's what they're doing, this Obama administration. Well, okay, this is Obama 2.0. Here we are. Now, in the context of what's going on with the trillions of dollars that the Biden administration wants to waste, more money because we're only, what, 30 trillion in debt. So let's just tack on more debt and riddle our kids and grandkids with unfeasible amounts of debt uh, for the rest of their lives. Who cares? It's just, you know, it's like this monopoly money to them at this point. But this was an interesting exchange between the White House press secretary and one of the reporters. Listen to this. You referenced Speaker Pelosi's press conference this morning. Yeah. It seemed like she somewhat backtracked from her message yesterday about what, you know, sort of path Democrats would need to take if there are fewer dollars. It seemed like she was indicating that programs... uh, Fewer programs done well would be the preference, but then this morning said that uh, the first thing to go would be the timeline. So has the president given any sort of a a push in in either direction on this? This is all part of the discussion, and I I will let you... uh, convey or ask questions of Speaker Pelosi yourself. She's, a, as, as we see, saw this morning, more than capable of speaking on her own behalf. Um, but what she was conveying is that, while it was the preference, her preference, the president's preference to have um, the initial package proposed, uh, what our focus now is on is uh, building a real, tangible package that can become law and is going to make a transformational difference in people's lives. So I understand, and we all know why we're talking here about about the size and, and the cuts, et cetera. But uh, a cut, uh, it's not a cut 
just because someone once proposed something bigger on paper. It's not a it's not a bill or a policy that's going to change lives if nothing is passed. And that's what we're working through. There's a lot of ways to do that. And that's the discussion she's having with her caucus. And the president is, of course, playing a prominent role in. So the president doesn't prefer then one avenue or the other? The president wants to make fundamental change in our economy. And he feels coming out of the pandemic is exactly the time to do that. And if we don't do it now, if we don't address uh, the cost of childcare, to go back to Josh's question earlier, if we don't uh, address the climate crisis, if we don't ensure that universal pre-K is a reality now, uh, we're, we're not going to have the same opportunity to do it for some time. Globalism, 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 technocracy, technocracy, technocracy. Fundamental change in our economy. Who elected this guy? Well, that's I should cut off the question right there. Then we can ask who elected Biden to fundamentally change the economy? Why don't you just say we want to become socialists? I mean, just put it out there and be honest because you can't. You're not going to say it because it would drive too many people who don't read away and go, well, wait a minute. Now they're saying they're actually for socialism. Fundamental change in our economy. We have all of these ships, as you know, off the American coastline waiting to dock. Now, this has been going on for quite a while now. And I have made the remark behind the scenes that I, you know, I've said, if, if Donald Trump were still president, there's no way those ships would be sitting out there very long. He would figure out a way to get those ships to port. And they would be unloaded. I don't believe them. Do you believe them? Oh, well, this is just so horrible. It's so hard. And we're doing our best. And Asaki even said about Biden with this supply chain crisis, now they've set up a task force. And Biden came out yesterday and was talking about opening the Los Angeles port 24-7 to offload. And he's only doing that because he's getting political pressure to do it because Christmas is coming up. And even the Democrats presumably want to be able to give Christmas gifts to one another. So he's getting political pressure to do it. Saki went out yesterday and talked about the fact that, well, we can't guarantee that we can fix the supply chain. I mean, we're not FedEx. We're not uh, the post office. Well, OK, there's a big difference between FedEx and the post office simply because the post office is government run, which should drive home this main point that we all know is true. Don't trust a government like this. You should never trust a government like this. I don't think you should trust government in general. A republic will only operate in a healthy way when people are pressing their elected officials and their bureaucracy to do the will of the people. When she's talking about this issue of making this package, this trillion dollar plus package, making a transformational difference in people's lives, When did anybody elect Biden to make a transformational difference in people's lives? Well, you mean throwing them into debt for the rest of their lives? That's transformational, all right. And what about the crises that she mentions? Universal pre-K and the climate crisis. No one cares. No one cares about universal pre-K. No one cares about the climate crisis that you guys try to gin up and focus on because you want to redistribute our wealth. How about talking about inflation and how much higher the prices for everything have become under the Biden administration. The, the price of gas, the price of food, everything is going up. And have you noticed when you go into the stores, you're seeing bare shelves. I feel like I'm back in the Soviet Union in some of these stores. There's nothing on the shelves. It wasn't even that bad during the height of the pandemic in 2020. What is going on? Why isn't there a fire under this White House getting them to act? Well, they're going to act a little bit, but we just can't guarantee. And by the way, what about the crisis of foreign policy? 
Remember that little Afghanistan withdrawal and Americans were stranded? Boy, that hit the front page and disappeared pretty quickly. Kind of like the shooter in Las Vegas at the Mand- Mandalay Bay. What You know, it happened. And I, you know, moving on. Amazing, isn't it? How, how a leftist media will move on when they don't want to talk about it. That was a scandal. That was a huge scandal. That was worse than Benghazi. But we're not going to hear about it anymore. What about the border crisis? Should we talk about the border crisis? And by the way, where is that border czar? Kamala Harris. Oh, she's making videos with paid child actors about her glee over the space program. And did you know that you can see the moon? I mean, this is what the vice president of the United States is involved in. Now, on one level, I must admit, I kind of want her making videos because if, if she's not doing something of that nature, she'll do something bad for the country. So, you know, maybe that is better. She can just make dumb videos and giggle a lot and be shipped to Singapore and get out of the way. I don't think they're letting her really do much of anything, which must be frustrating to her. But all of these crises that are coming upon this nation, these people don't care. They want it. I believe they want it because they want to transform this country. They want to take away everything that has made us great. They want to demean and deny the values that we have as Americans. I mean, just the Columbus Day thing, Indigenous Peoples Day, that's just dumb. It's just dumb. I'm not slamming Indigenous peoples, but come on. It's a way to change America. It's a way to denigrate America because they don't like America as it was handed down to them. Who could possibly not love America? The place where millions flock to in order to find freedom. And I don't know how much longer we'll have it. By the way, I thought this was rather interesting. Did you know that Florida is taking advantage of this shipping crisis. And they've said now, this was with Governor DeSantis, who spent $250 million of stimulus money on the 15 seaports in Florida to help offset pandemic impacts. This is according to WCTV. And now the CEO of the Florida Ports Council, Michael Rubin, is saying, hey, shipping companies, you can dock here in Florida. Our ports are open. We're ready for business. Come on over here since you can't get into California or Savannah, some of these other ports. Florida's over here. And I thought, this is very Trumpian. (laughs) I said, I wonder if Donald Trump was having a little phone call with Governor DeSantis about this. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because what a contrast between this man in the White House who doesn't know which way is up and can't figure out the difference between Ohio and Pennsylvania and eats ice cream and he's out of it half the time. And somebody who is an effective, strong conservative serving as the governor of the state of Florida. God bless Ron DeSantis. He's just awesome. And this is also a contrast. There's a great piece in The Hill on Amateur Hour. Pete Buttigieg's inexperience exposed as the supply chain breaks down. Uh, And it talks about how ill-suited Pete Buttigieg was for this position and cites even the fact that there was an attack ad launched by Joe Biden and his team against Buttigieg for how inexperienced he was during the primaries. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, you know, remember he got caught riding a bike and then he put it, he took it out of a trunk. He made, he was trying to make everybody think that he rides his bike to work. And then he was discovered hauling the bike out of the back of a trunk. It was all a stunt. What does he do? Oh, wait a minute. He's a homosexual and he has a baby, two babies, now adopted with his man partner. I'm not going to say husband. That's not a husband role. So I guess because he meets the identity politics qualification that he can be completely in over his head as the head of, you know, as the transportation secretary. 
such incompetence from top to bottom, from top to bottom. It is a disgrace. Pray for this country. Thank you for being with us. We've got to go. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.